Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, I'm going to finally wrap up the discussion of RCA, the four-episode arc about RCA. And it'll all finish up in this episode, but that's going to mean I'll be packing a whole lot into one episode. I'm not going to go long. I'm just going to have a light touch because we have to cover about 50 years of history in this episode. So I won't be going into so much technical detail for a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, besides which I've covered a lot of it already. However, I do need to start off with a description of how electron microscopes work because I think I've mentioned it in at least two of the previous episodes and I haven't actually talked about it yet. So rather than put it off again, let's talk about electron microscopes. Why do you need them? What do they do? Well, when you start getting small and when you start working with small stuff, and I mean really, really small stuff, you get to a point where you can no longer rely upon optical microscopes anymore. And that's because of a couple of big problems. One of them is that a microscope's ability to magnify is limited by two major factors. One of those would be the quality of the lenses. Eventually, you reach a point where you just can't make lenses of a high enough quality to get better magnification. But you also run into the physical limitation of light itself, visible light because it's dependent upon the wavelength of that visible light. The theoretical limit of resolution for a light-based microscope, not the practical, but the theoretical limit, is somewhere around 200 to 250 nanometers, because beyond that, you get beyond the wavelength of natural light, and it literally cannot image things smaller than that. The, the wavelengths are bigger than the thing it's trying to, <laughs> you're trying to look at. However, 200 to 250 nanometers, that's, that's really small. I mean, that is the nanoscale. That is tiny. But if you do need to look at stuff that's smaller than that, because there are things even smaller than that level, you got to figure out some other way of doing it because light waves can't do it. They're too big. So you've got to figure some other method out. Now, electrons have very, very short wavelengths, shorter than light. So if you had a way to beam electrons at a sample, you know, whatever it is you're trying to look at, and then you had some means of detecting all of the different signals that would be produced as the electrons from the beam would interact with the sample, you could use that information to construct images of the sample at that scale. So the electrons you would use would be high-energy beam electrons. And when they collide with a sample, the interactions would produce all sorts of stuff like secondary electrons, backscattered electrons, x-rays, that kind of thing. You would have specific detectors to pick up these different signals and register them for processing to create the final image. And these microscopes have a much greater resolution than optical microscopes. But even these have their limitations. A scanning electron microscope has a limit of around one nanometer or so. You're not going to get much smaller than a single nanometer. Now, that is still incredibly small, but it's still too big to look at individual atoms. The atomic scale is smaller than the nanoscale. So if you wanted to get a look at atoms, you would have to use something else, like a scanning tunneling microscope. But those wouldn't come around until the 1980s. All right, so that's how electron microscopes work, uh, uh, or scanning electron microscopes work. 
And RCA had been in that business of making those um, along with the consumer electronics they were making and the other industries they were involved in. Now let's get back to RCA's history. In the last episode, we left off right around the early to mid-50s. And so we've got to cover all the time from that point to present day in this episode. Fortunately, there are large spans of time that we can kind of leap over. Now, one thing the company was gearing up to do was to introduce solid-state electronics into its line of products. Bell Labs had developed the transistor in the 1940s, although it was pretty primitive. It wasn't ready to be incorporated into uh, consumer electronics yet. It would take several years for that. So RCA got a relative late start in the field of transistors and solid-state electronics and semiconductors because they had focused more on using vacuum tubes. In fact, in 1950, RCA was the largest manufacturer of vacuum tubes in the world at that point. RCA even built an experimental television with transistors as early as 1952, but this was, again, an experiment not meant as a consumer product. In 1953, an engineer named Cohen built a wrist radio that quickly got the nickname the Dick Tracy Wrist Radio, after the comic strip character Dick Tracy, who has an iconic wrist radio device that allows him to speak with his supervisor. Now, RCA did not build this device. Cohen wasn't working for RCA. However, Cohen did use some of RCA's transistors to help power and operate this device. So RCA actually got a nice boost in publicity because everyone was really excited about this wrist radio. It seemed like the thing of the future, the gadget of the future. In the late 1950s, RCA began to design and manufacture components for satellites. So at this point, solid state is ready to go, and they're now looking at creating uh, satellite technology. Specifically, they were looking at radio communications technology in satellites. RCA started doing some preliminary research and development in 1957, and they created a dedicated division for that purpose. And eventually they called it the RCA Astroelectronics Division. Uh, They actually got the official name in March 1958. Now, in turn, this particular division was under a larger department called the RCA Defense Electronic Products because RCA was still very much in the business of designing components for defense systems for the military. They had been doing that since World War II. The company's first satellite to launch successfully was called the Signal Communications by Orbiting Relay Equipment, or SCORE is the acronym for that. And that entered into service on December 18, 1958. RCA was kind of exploring the possibility of establishing a network of satellites for the purposes of global communications. And that would really begin in earnest in 1962 with another communication satellite called Relay, Relay would relay communication signals between North America and Europe and between North America and South America. So quickly it was uh, theorized that with an appropriate number of satellites in orbit, you could have global communications and just use the satellites to relay signals until they got to wherever you needed them to go. The relay communication satellite also worked in conjunction with another satellite called the CINCOM-3, and the two satellites together were able to provide live television coverage of the 1964 Olympics, which were going on in Japan, over to North America. So that was an amazing development, being able to watch stuff live with only a a slight delay, really, 
uh, as they, they were going on on the other side of the world. RCA would partner with NASA to develop weather satellites and a ground-based observation station. So they were really becoming an instrumental uh, company in the space race as well. Around the same time, RCA contributed some of the equipment that would make up the United States Ballistic Missile Early Warning System, or BMUS, B-M-E-W-S. It was a system of radar facilities and communications channels meant to detect and alert the United States to any sort of missile launch originating particularly in the Soviet Union. Because this was taking place during the Cold War between the USSR and the United States. And it became particularly important in the wake of the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik, which wasn't just a satellite, but also a demonstration that the Soviet Union was capable of launching a missile that had a long enough range to potentially strike the United States. So if the Soviet Union were to, say, attach a payload of a nuclear warhead to such a missile, it could, in theory, have a nuclear strike against the U.S. So the United States wanted to have a system in place in order to detect any potential missile launches from the USSR. RCA would produce a radar set and a communications data processor for this system. It also relied, uh, the system that is, relied on equipment from many other companies, not just RCA. Companies like General Electric, Western Electric, and Sylvania also contributed components to this. So while RCA was prominent in the minds of consumers looking for television sets at home, the company was also working closely with government and military organizations in the United States. In the 1960s, RCA dominated in the television camera industry. Uh, the, the consumer television industry, going out and buying a television set, that was really competitive. But RCA was pretty much the name in television cameras for actual TV studios. The TK44 had become the industry standard. And on the consumer front, color television sales were starting to pick up in the early to mid-60s. By 1966, the overall color television market was around $3 billion a year. Now, that's for all color TVs, not just the ones that RCA was making. So we're talking worldwide sales reaching $3 billion. Hefty, but not anything close to what the uh, television consumer market is today, obviously. Now, at the same time, the company was participating in larger efforts to develop new technologies, and one of those was the Stereo 8 format, also known as the 8-track tape. This was a form of magnetic tape storage specifically for audio and music. It was largely designed for in-car audio systems, and honestly, it probably merits its own episode of Tech Stuff. I should probably do a full episode of Tech Stuff about the development of the 8-track format, particularly since some of the people involved are real characters. Uh, one of those would have been uh, the legendary Earl Madman Muntz, who was an important and eccentric figure in consumer electronics in the 40s and 50s and, and 60s as well. Anyway, prior to the 8-track, Goldmark that was the uh, brilliant engineer who had been a pain in the butt to RCA's uh, David Sarnoff back when they were trying to race against CBS in developing color television and the 33 and a third RPM long playing record. Goldmark was the guy at CBS who developed both of those. Well, he also developed a hi-fi car system, a, a system that would allow you to play recorded music 
in your vehicle, not just rely upon the radio, something that is pretty standard in vehicles today, but it was brand new back then. Now, however, Goldmark's approach relied upon vinyl records. Yep, you would have a turntable in your car (laughs) instead of a cassette player or CD player or digital radio these days. So as you can imagine, this was not ideal because if you went down a bumpy road, it would start sending this needle skipping all over the record. And so you would get terrible uh, experience that way. You know, the, the song would skip around or you'd have this horrible scratching noise. There were other ways of getting around it. You could weigh the needle down a little bit. That would discourage skipping. However, it would also cause more wear on the actual records. So you wouldn't be able to play them as many times. You would Uh, decrease the useful lifespan of the records. Muntz decided that to fix this, he would change the method of storing music. He wanted to use magnetic storage on tape, and he created a four-track magnetic tape system, which was later refined by a different crazy person in consumer technology, William Bill Lear, sometimes referred to as King Lear, which I think is a cute nod to Shakespeare. And he created the eight-track system. Lear worked with numerous other companies to finalize the standard, which really helped its adoption. And one of those companies was RCA. One of the interesting things about 8-track tapes is that some of the mechanics for playback are actually in the cartridges themselves, not in the playback devices. So some of the moving parts for an 8-track player are not even in the player. They're inside the cartridge. Each cartridge has those parts. Uh, The 8-track had about a decade-long run as an in-car sound system component, but it was eventually displaced by cartridges. They were – actually, cartridges had come out a little bit before 8-tracks, but it took some time before they reached a quality level where they were reliable and provided good enough sound quality for them to compete against 8-tracks. 8-tracks had their own limitations. You couldn't fast-forward and and rewind an 8-track tape. You pretty much had to listen through it and then turn it over and listen through it again. Uh, And also because those moving parts were inside the cartridges, whenever a company would make cheaper 8-tracks in an effort to try and, and build out a larger customer base because they were kind of expensive when they first came out, they would skimp on materials. But that meant that some of the moving parts that were you know, necessary for this to work were made of cheaper materials and they would break more readily. So the format eventually fizzled out. Also in 1964, RCA engineers would come up with an idea for a video playback device that would work kind of like a record player except for video, not for sound. And instead of transmitting vibrations through a stylus, right, instead of having a groove with tiny vibrations that create a uh, – uh, through the vibrations of the stylus create an electrical impulse that ends up being turned into uh, into sound through an amplifier, this was a stylus that would measure differences in capacitance. Uh, Capacitance, by the way, that refers to a ratio. It's the ratio of the change in an electric charge in a system compared to the change in its electric potential. And to go into further detail would require a lot of talk and it would make this episode go way too long. But I will get back to this particular device later in the show because the work began in the 60s. But it would take almost 20 years before RCA could actually do anything commercial with this technology. And as we'll see, by that time, it was a little too late. 
Now, on January 1st, 1965, Robert Sarnoff, David Sarnoff's son, becomes the president of the company. So his father steps back from being president, although he was still chairman of the board of directors, and his son, Robert, becomes president. Uh, He was already a seasoned executive. He had been the president of NBC since 1956. And during that time, he had overseen some pretty big changes in television programming, one of those being that NBC began to include black entertainers on shows. And at the time, integration was pretty progressive. Robert Sarnoff would end up taking over RCA and trying to grow it. Five years after he became the president of the RCA, uh, he would become the chairman of the board. But his role as leader of the company, as we will see, would not be permanent. In 1965, RCA began producing a special machine called the Spectra 70. This was a mainframe-style computer. So this was RCA trying to get into the mainframe computer business. And this particular computer was semi-compatible with another mainframe computer, the IBM 360 mainframe. So RCA was trying to go into competition against IBM at the height of IBM's powers, which was probably not the best idea. Now, I called it semi-compatible because the Spectra 70 could run some, but not all of the code that was written for the IBM 360. The hardware of the Spectra 70 was compatible with the IBM 360, but the operating systems, the the, uh, firmware and, and the OS were a little different between the two. So not every program was directly portable from IBM 360 to the Spectra 70. So... It pursued the strategy of being in the mainframe computer business for a few years. But as we will see in just a moment, that was not to last either. Now, I've got a lot more to say about what RCA has been up to over the last 60 years or so. But before I get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now we're about to enter an odd era in RCA's history, and it's one marked with tons of acquisitions and mergers. Instead of being innovative in the technology space, although RCA was continuing to try and do that, uh, it was growing by buying up other companies. So in 1965, RCA purchases a book publisher. In fact, a, a very famous book publisher, Random House. This was an early attempt for RCA to try and diversify and and go beyond electronics and technology. Uh, RCA would hold on to Random House until 1980, at which point it would sell Random House to another company called Advanced Publications for $70 million. In 1967, just two years after buying Random House, the company would acquire another big company, Hertz Rental Car. So you can already see that things are a little strange here. RCA buys a book publisher, then a rental car company, neither of which seems to be remotely connected to its core businesses. RCA would allow Hertz to operate as essentially an independent subsidiary. Uh, Hertz still had its own executive leadership. It had its own board of directors. And ultimately, RCA would hold on to Hertz until 1985, and then they sold the company for $587.5 million, a princely sum. However, this was not as much as what RCA was hoping to get for Hertz. In fact, RCA had already tried to sell Hertz two years earlier in 1983, but 
they were soliciting bids for the company and they were hoping to get a bid of around $700 million, but no one was biting at that at that price. So they held on to the company for a couple more years and in 85, they finally sold it. Uh, the company that bought Hertz was UAL, which was a holding company for United Airlines. Uh, probably have to do a full episode about that company at some point. In 1968, uh, RCA would introduce another really cool technology, one that we depend heavily upon uh, these days in various formats, and that would be the liquid crystal display. RCA displayed it publicly in 1968. They had a big press event. Engineers led by a guy named Richard Williams had been working on this LCD technology for years. Now, essentially, a liquid crystal display consists of a couple of sheets of polarizing material, and between those sheets, sandwiched if you like, is a liquid crystal solution. So what's a liquid crystal? Well, it's a substance that's kind of in between being a solid and a liquid. Molecules in a solid material all, ma all maintain the same orientation and the same position with respect to one another. So in other words, all, all the molecules are stuck where they are with respect to each other in a solid. But in a liquid, it's different. Molecules in a liquid are free to change their orientation and position with respect to each other. They float all over the place and they twist and turn freely. Liquid crystals tend to maintain their orientation, so they all tend to continue pointing in whatever direction they're pointing in when it starts, but the molecules are able to change their positions with respect to each other. So they all point in the same direction as they had started, but they can move uh, around each other. They can be in one of several distinct phases, but the important phase for liquid crystal displays is a phase called the pneumatic phase. One type of liquid crystal is called a twisted pneumatic liquid crystal, and twisted pneumatics are very important for LCDs. They are, as the name suggests, twisted. But if you apply an electric current to a twisted pneumatic liquid crystal, it untwists. If you vary the voltage of this electric current, you change the degree to which it untwists. So you can make it untwist more or less by varying the voltage. This behavior is replicable. It's predictable. It's always going to happen exactly the same way assuming you vary the voltage in exactly the same way. So you can use these crystals to do very specific stuff. For example, you can use them to block light from passing through a surface. And then you could use it to allow light to pass through other parts of this surface. And this is how we use liquid crystals in a, an electronic display. The crystals block light that's trying to come through or allow light to come through. And... Uh, LCD TVs work this way. It's why you would often hear people talk about how LCD televisions had a problem whenever there was a very dark scene on screen because there's always a backlight in an LCD display and the liquid crystals are blocking the light. But some of that light kind of bleeds through. So you wouldn't get these very dark black colors in LCD displays because there was always this light behind that screen of liquid crystals. You would have to get something like a plasma display, which actually wouldn't backlight the screen. So you could get those more deep, dark black colors uh, on that kind of television. Anyway, I'll have to do a full episode about LCDs to describe their history and how they work in a future episode. 
Richard Williams was instrumental in finding the practical application for liquid crystals in electronics, and RCA held this big public demonstration in 1968. It was also one of the last big company events that David Sarnoff would attend. His health was deteriorating at this point. And remember, he had been in charge of RCA since 1919 and had only stepped back in 1965 for his son to take over as president, and he had remained as chairman of the board. 1968, RCA finally updates its logo. RCA Victor would become RCA Records, and uh, Victor is now just a brand name that shows up on stuff like album covers, and it seems a little haphazard the way Victor shows up on albums. I'm not entirely certain that there's a particular rhyme or reason to it, but uh, uh, RCA's logo would be turned into what was considered at the time to be a futuristic logo. These days we would look at it and think, oh, well, that's a, a quaint retro, like 1980s style logo almost. And that was in 1968. Also in 68, a miniature RCA television camera was used on Apollo 7 to provide the first live television pictures captured from outer space and beamed back to Earth. RCA also built the radio backpack that Neil Armstrong wore when he set foot on the moon and delivered the famous One Small Step for a Man line in 1969. The company was also responsible for designing components for multiple space probes like the Viking Mars probes and much later, they were also responsible for some of the subsystems on the space shuttles. In 1969, RCA would change its name officially from the Radio Corporation of America, that was the official name of the company, to RCA Corporation. Also in 69, RCA and CBS would ignite a new feud. If you listen to the previous episodes, you know that RCA and CBS fought several times. In the 40s, they were battling to define the standard for color television. Now, in 69, just at the dawn of the 1970s, they were competing to try and create a new technology for home video playback. This would be a device capable of playing back video media on demand at home, uh, sort of a precursor to the VCR, and then later still to technology like DVD players and Blu-ray players. The CBS version debuted first, it actually debuted in 67, I think, and it was called the Electronic Video Recording Device, or EVR for short. RCA's approach was originally called the SV Holotape. Uh, later, the company would dub it the SelectaVision, which gets really confusing because uh, RCA has used SelectaVision for a few different products over its history. But CBS's version was further along than RCA's when RCA debuted theirs. Um, in fact, when RCA showed off this technology, it was not yet able to play sound. It was uh, showing video, but it was all silent. There was no soundtrack to go along with it. The process of mastering a tape for this system was actually really cool for, uh, for RCA's. It actually involved lasers and holograms. But RCA would experience some financial difficulties as it was trying to develop this technology further. Those, those financial difficulties were largely due to RCA trying to extricate itself from the computer mainframe business it had gotten into in the 60s. And meanwhile, while RCA was trying to weather that storm, another video technology, the VCR, came out and pretty much made both the EVR from CBS and RCA's Selectavision moot. 
they just couldn't compete against the VCR. And it would ultimately mean that RCA would abandon its attempts to market the holotape as a consumer product. So it never really launched as an actual thing you could go out and buy. In 1970, David Sarnoff would retire as chairman of the board. Although, to be more accurate, he was really in the late stages of a long-term illness, and so he was effectively removed as chairman. I don't get the sense that he chose to step down so much as he was forced to. Also in 1970, RCA announced another plan for another acquisition. Uh, And you remember they had already talked about – they had already bought the Hertz Rent-A-Car and – and Random House Publishing. So what was it this time? Well, it hits close to home for me, actually. They bought Coronet Industries. What was Coronet Industries? Or what is it? It's a carpeting company, a flooring company. So again, this was another effort for RCA to diversify its holdings. And this acquisition would officially complete in 1971. Now, I said it hits close to home. What did I mean by that? Well, the headquarters for Coronet Industries was uh, or is in Dalton, Georgia. Dalton, Georgia is in the northwest part of Georgia. If you ever drive through that part of Georgia, you will see numerous billboards for rug and carpeting uh, wholesalers. And uh, yeah, so I, I actually was surprised to hear that RCA at one point owned that company. RCA would eventually sell this off in 1986 to CI Holdings Incorporated. Uh, But we'll get into that because when I say RCA sold it off, I don't really mean RCA. That's a a hint for things to come. In 1970 as well, uh, RCA would also buy another company that made people scratch their heads. This would be Banquet Foods, the company that at the time was most known for its TV dinners and frozen foods. RCA would hold on to this for a decade but sell it in 1980. And due to the efforts to diversify and the fact that there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for the types of companies that RCA was going after, some people inside the company felt like RCA was losing focus. I mean, what did RCA even do anymore? Its core businesses used to be electronics, both for consumers and for business-to-business as well as for government and military uses. But now, now it had a rental car company, it had a carpeting company, and a frozen food company. Some people began to joke that RCA really stood for rugs, chickens, and automobiles. In 1971, David Sarnoff passes away. So this was the man who had largely been associated with RCA. In fact, a lot of RCA's history tends to get tied directly to David Sarnoff and his personality. He was a force to be reckoned with, and his passing was probably uh, one of the more remarkable things to happen to RCA during its full history. Uh, It it seems to me like this was a case of another leader of a company having an extreme influence on how that company did business. You know, some leaders, you would think they would have an extreme influence, but they may just help keep the company going while other people handle stuff. They might be more decentralized. Sarnoff did not come across to me as that kind of person. Also in 1971, RCA would get out of the mainframe computer business. They sell it off to another company called Universal Automatic Computer, better known as Univac. 
And ultimately, this computer business was unprofitable for RCA. The sale represented a a huge loss for the company. Uh, According to some sources I read, mostly the New York Times, it amounted to essentially a $250 million write-off, which wasn't great news. And in 1975, the board of directors decided to oust Robert Sarnoff as chairman and CEO. They felt that the attempts to diversify RCA had weakened the company. This this exit from mainframe computer business also hurt the company. So this was essentially what some people refer to as a palace coup. It came from within the company itself. And RCA president and chief operating officer Anthony Conrad led this coup attempt. Uh, Anthony Conrad had first joined RCA way back in 1946 after being discharged from the Army after World War II and had worked there ever since. He had made his way up the corporate ladder, and in the 1950s, he was the executive in charge of overseeing RCA's missile and space tracking operations. And now he was the head of the company. He became the new CEO, and in June 1976, he was elected chairman. RCA's performance was starting to turn around. The company was beginning to make money. Things seemed to be on the mend. However, Conrad turned out to have some skeletons in his closet. In September 1976, just 10 months after he had taken control of the company, Conrad announced he was resigning his position. And it turned out he had kind of sort of failed to file any income taxes for five years And the IRS kind of wanted to talk to him about it because the agency had held a a routine inquiry and saw some irregularities. So Conrad would end up settling up with the IRS. He was essentially a fugitive in New York State for two years until he was able to reach a plea deal in which he paid a $1,000 fine, but also an undisclosed but presumably sizable amount of money in back taxes, interest, and penalties. So after he resigned, a guy named Edgar H. Griffiths took control of RCA. Griffiths was concerned with getting RCA back on track from a numbers perspective. So he wasn't so much of a leader as far as strategy and long-term plans goes. He was trying to get the numbers to line up. So he began to divest the company of many of the subsidiaries that had been accumulating throughout its history since Robert Sarnoff had taken control, stuff like uh, Banquet Foods and Hertz Rental Cars. So he was kind of trying to undo what Robert Sarnoff had done. In 1980, Griffiths directed RCA to purchase another company. So he sells off a lot of companies, but then he directs RCA to acquire a different company. This would be Commercial Investment Trust, or CIT. And the deal was for $1.3 billion or thereabouts, a huge sum. CIT is an investment company, and as the name suggests, it provides financing to other companies. After acquiring CIT, RCA would sell off several subsidiary companies that had belonged to CIT, including an office furniture manufacturing company and a greeting card company which just tells me corporate politics are weird and complicated, and I don't understand diversification very well. Anyway, this acquisition caused RCA's credit rating to drop, and that made the board of directors very upset. So they demanded that Griffiths resign, and he did. And in 1981, a new leader was brought on or uh, pushed to the to the front of the company. This would be Thornton F. Bradshaw. He was a member of the board 
of RCA when they made this decision to get rid of Griffiths. And he was also the president of the Atlantic Richfield Company, which was an oil company. So he became the new leader of RCA. And then he made Robert R. Frederick, who had previously worked at General Electric, the new president of RCA. Eventually, uh, Bradshaw becomes the chairman of the board and Frederick would become the CEO. But they continued to sell off the diversified subsidiaries. And by 1985, all of those companies that had been acquired, including CIT, had been sold off except for the carpeting company Coronet Industries. That one would stick around till 1986. Uh, jumping back to 1981, RCA finally released that video disc technology I talked about earlier in this episode. It was called a CED, or Capacitance Electronic Disc Player. The tech for the video uh, playback device only allowed you to play video. You could not record to it. But you could grab a plastic caddy, kind of looked almost like a, a vinyl record album cover, and you would insert it into a player, and you could watch a video. Each side of the disc could hold about 60 minutes of NTSC video. That's the television standard in the United States, or it was the television standard in the United States. So movies would typically require you to take the disc out halfway through the film, flip it over, and then put it back in to continue watching the movie. The discs themselves were inside these protective plastic caddies. So you wouldn't handle the discs. You would handle the, the plastic sleeves, essentially. And you, they were hard plastic or semi-hard plastic sleeves, at least. They weren't, like, super floppy or anything. So you'd slide these suckers in and watch a movie. And I actually had one of these. My family had one of these when I was growing up. In fact, I now own it. My parents gave it to me. So it's at my house. And I even have a few movies for it, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Singing in the Rain. The technology worked just fine. You got picture. You got audio. But by the time it debuted in 1981, it was already obsolete because you already had other video standards. You had the, uh, the VHS, you had Betamax, you had LaserDisc. And even though LaserDisc didn't last super long, it was definitely superior to CED quality. And you didn't have to, uh, uh, you could have extra stuff on LaserDiscs, stuff that would carry over into uh, the DVD era. So RCA's technology was interesting, but it never took off. And by 1984, just a, three years after they debuted the tech, they discontinued manufacturing the playback machines. So I guess I've got a collector's edition thing, kind of. Anyway, 1985. This is a big, important year because it's the year when General Electric announced its intent to acquire RCA. A huge deal. And it did so in 1986 for $6.4 billion. All right, we're coming up to the most important year in recent history for RCA. In fact, some would argue that we're talking about the final year of RCA. I'll explain more in just a minute, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, we're up to 1985. This was a monumental year because it was the year when GE would make the decision to acquire RCA, although that acquisition wouldn't be complete until 1986. And the deal was for $6.4 billion. Now, this, th this meant that this was the largest ever acquisition or merger business deal that didn't involve an oil company in the history of business at this point. It has since been eclipsed, obviously, 
But in 1986, a $6.4 billion merger between two companies that were not oil companies, that was a record-breaking moment. And it came at a time when RCA chairman Thornton Bradshaw and RCA CEO Robert R. Frederick had managed to get RCA on a profitable track. They had managed to sell off these businesses, most of them anyway, that didn't make any sense to RCA's core business. They were able to refocus RCA. They were able to make it profitable. NBC was doing incredibly well toward uh, 1985. It had started to win awards for its programming and starting to, to get more viewership. Things were really looking great. And on November 6, 1985, after having a meeting with the board of directors, Bradshaw would go off and meet with a guy named John F. Welch Jr., who was the chairman and CEO of GE at that time. Now, if you've been listening to all of these episodes, you might remember GE was one of the founding partners for RCA. In fact, it was the principal partner. Way back in 1919, GE owned most of RCA for many of the early years until it was forced to divest itself because the U.S. government said you can't do that anymore. However, now we're in the 80s. This is the Reagan era when the U.S. government was less concerned about things like monopolies. And there was a very laissez-faire approach to corporate politics and corporate acquisitions. This was the, the era of hostile takeovers. But you might wonder, if RCA was doing so well, why was Bradshaw willing to entertain this deal? If RCA is actually on the right track, why go with an acquisition deal in the first place? Well, part of the problem that Bradshaw saw was the culture at the time, because like I said, this was the era of hostile takeovers. So there was always a fear that someone would end up creating an environment where they would uh, approach shareholders with a deal that was too good to refuse and then take over the company. Not only that, but RCA had $2 billion in cash because it had divested itself of all these other companies and also found that it had been overpaying the pension fund. So there was actually extra cash left over because the pension fund had more money in it than it needed. It also meant that if a company came in uh, or some investors came in and they spent a huge amount of money to acquire RCA, they could then leverage that $2 billion in cash to pay off any debts. And more problematic than that, Parts of RCA were really, really valuable. In fact, it was thought that if you were to divide up RCA into different pieces, you could make more money selling those individual pieces off to different companies than you would if you just operated RCA as a full company in itself. In fact, Bradshaw had even looked at offloading some more of RCA. At one point, he had looked at the possibility of selling NBC to Disney. But eventually Bradshaw realized that RCA really needed NBC. The revenue NBC was bringing in was too important to RCA's business. So he couldn't really afford to divest itself. So the two companies, GE and RCA, happened to have some divisions and departments that clearly complemented one another. Uh, RCA had done a lot of work for the Navy and GE had done a lot of work for the Army. So bringing the two companies together would create a more unified approach for military contracts, that kind of thing. So after some debate, RCA's board met and agreed to GE's terms. And 
At that point, once GE takes over, you could argue that is the end of RCA. RCA is no longer an independent company. It is now part of GE. And more than that, GE starts to make some pretty big changes over the next few years. They begin to merge departments. So they begin to take RCA departments and merge them into existing GE divisions. Or they liquefy parts of RCA and sell it off. Uh, and one of those divisions that it did this with was uh, Astro Elect- Electronics Department. That was the uh, the company or the part of uh, RCA that was specifically focused on space technology. GE would merge that department with its own space systems division and thus created the GE Astro Space Division. But this was not meant to stay on as a GE property forever. In 1993, GE would sell off this entire division to Martin Marietta, which turned around and merged with Lockheed, and that's where we get Lockheed Martin in 1995. Lockheed Martin announced it would close the Astro Electronics Division facility, and that finally happened in 1998. So that part of RCA is no more. Uh, it, it ended years, 40 years of research and development in space and communications tech out of that facility. So that was just part of it. Uh, you would get to a lot of other spinoffs here. Uh, GE would sell off a lot of what made RCA the company that it was. And uh, it would also spin off other divisions like NBC became its own sort of autonomous unit instead of being connected to what RCA used to be. Uh, In 1986, GE would sell off RCA Records to Bertelsmann. So that company would become the steward of RCA Records, which was formerly RCA Victor. And remember, Victor was a company that even was older than RCA. In 1987, GE would sell NBC Radio to Westwood One, and it would hold on to the NBC television network. So the radio network would be sold, but the TV network stayed behind. Uh, Selling off the radio networks was one of the conditions that GE was forced to meet in order to get approval from the United States government for the acquisition. Then uh, GE would also sell the RCA name, the consumer electronics brand, essentially, to a French company called Thomson Brandt. Uh, We'll get back to that in just a second. In 1988, Sarnoff Labs, that was the R&D arm of RCA, was funded uh, for GE for several years, but then GE would transfer Sarnoff Labs to the nonprofit organization SRI International. Uh, That's another organization I should probably cover in a future tech stuff is SRI International. It's a scientific research institute. It's based in Menlo Park, California. Originally, it was founded by trustees from Stanford University in the 1940s. In fact, SRI stood for Stanford Research Institute. But the organization formally parted ways with the university back in 1970. Anyway, by 2011, Sarnoff Labs had become fully integrated as part of SRI International, so it does not exist as its own independent thing anymore. Uh, In 2004, GE would merge NBC with Vivendi Universal Entertainment, and that created NBC Entertainment. But GE would remain the majority owner at that point. Also in 2004, Sony Music and the Berlman uh, Music Group, or BMG, would merge together. And that brought RCA Records under the umbrella of Sony. Interesting side note, Sony is also the parent company of Columbia Records. And if you remember from my earlier episode, Columbia Records and RCA were fierce competitors in the early days of records. 
Uh, now they're both part of the same overall company. As for GVC, that is the Japanese Victor company that was part of RCA for a while. That actually had split off decades earlier. It split off from RCA during World War II for obvious reasons. It was operating in Japan and we were at war with Japan. Uh, JVC has a record company called Victor Entertainment. This one still uses the logo of the dog looking at the gramophone, the, the one that's titled His Master's Voice. In 2011, Comcast would buy controlling interest in NBC, so it's no longer part of GE. Comcast has it as an enormous conglomerate. So a big question you might have is, you know, I started this all off by saying RCA is celebrating its 100th year. So what is it, what, what is actually left? What is, what is celebrating its 100th year? Well, the company, which had ballooned into an enormous and troubled conglomerate in the 60s and 70s, has been through so many different sales and spinoffs and mergers that there's no longer an RCA company. There's no longer an independent company called RCA. The name RCA still exists. The brand still exists. It is a trademarked brand. Today, the owner of that trademark is the French company Technicolor SA. That was the one that used to be known as Thomson. The company licensed the, uh, the name RCA to other companies that wish to use it on various products. So that includes uh, RCA Records, which I mentioned is part of Sony Music, uh, RCA Telephones and RCA Projectors, uh, a company called Telefield uses those, RCA Audio and Video and RCA, RCA Accessories are both licensed by Vox International, that's V-O-X-X, uh, RCA Televisions licensed by uh, On Corporation, um, you have uh, RCA Computers, which is licensed to American Future Technology Corporation. You get the idea, like there's there's the brand, the name still exists, but the company doesn't. So to say that RCA is celebrating its 100th year is I think a little misleading, maybe more than a little misleading because the company itself hasn't really existed since 1986. Uh, it's interesting to see how a company that was so instrumental in very important moments in consumer electronic history, like the development of color television, could ultimately whittle, get whittled away down to, to nothing, really. But I thought I would cover this because it was a fascinating story, and it has had such an important impact on various parts of technology. Our next episode will not be so deep and, and uh, grave a subject as the 100-year history of a company. We're instead going to look at a popular video game and how it got so popular and its story. I'm talking about Fortnite. That'll be the next episode. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, get in touch with me. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can pop on over to techstuffpodcast.com and you can get in touch with me through social media there. You can also look at the archive of all the shows over there. Don't forget to pop on over to our merchandise store that's over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. Every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 